welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host, Simon. And this week we're going to be discussing the George Orwell essay known as As I Please 45. But before we start, Simon, I believe you've had a bit of an existential crisis recently. I have, Lewis. So I haven't told you this yet, have I? I just told you I'm having a crisis. So mm. remember I told you I sent off to a company to have my DNA tested? Yes. To, to know my heritage. Mm. Uh, well, my results came back today. And to my huge surprise, it turns out I'm 2% English. Just 2%? 2% English. What's the biggest percentage? So I'm 47.5% Celt. Ah. Wait, but Irish, Scots, Welsh. Brother. <laughs> I know. Well, probably, you're probably 65% English when you get yours done. But. Like, it's likely. It's very likely. It wasn't a huge surprise. So my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, is Welsh, or was Welsh. She was from Colwyn in North Wales. And it's so specific. It says you're 47.5% Irish, Scots, Welsh. And then in even more detail, it says likely North Wales, Northwest England. Okay. And um, yeah, she was from Colwyn or near Colwyn Bay in North Wales. So I think that's where it comes from. And my father's mother's maiden name was Keane. Irish. Which is, obviously she's come from Irish stock. So I think that's where that comes from. Then 44% Norwegian Swedish. Really? Yeah. That's a bit of a wild card, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm six foot one. It makes sense. I have a ginger beard, mm. and I'm mighty with a sword, and I like drinking. And you so, often, I've often seen you like beating up monks. <laughs> yeah, and like sacking Northumbrian villages. And I bloody love Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? I'm poor. That's <laughs> Swedish, isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> so that explains You've often that. been inside a Volvo. Anyway, I was... 2% finish and... Sorry, two... I'll, I'll let you finish. Oh, very good, very good. Punja, He's on, he's on, he's on fire. Uh, 2% English and then 1 point something percent South Italian. That's interesting. I, I think some great-great-grandmother had a fling with some handsome Italian barber in 1805 or something. At least I hope that's the story. I need to talk to mum. So you... To me, you always made a lot about your French Huguenot ancestry. Was there yeah. any indication of that at all? Nothing. Now, this is why I'm a tad sceptical. My, 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 my surname, my father's surname is Perry, which is Norman. Perry is pear cider, and it was brought over from Normandy to the southwest of England. My mother's maiden name was Rulier which is most definitely Huguenot. So French on both sides, you would French think. French on both sides. But obviously, those names have somehow come about through marriage and ver um, various connections. Or maybe somewhere down the line, the name Roulier was adopted as opposed to being something that had been passed through the ages. 
they might have had a completely different name for some reason or other, adopted the name Moulier. I mean, we're talking maybe three, four hundred years ago. So. so just to recap, you are really mostly Celtic and Scandinavian. Apparently so. Which in a way doesn't surprise me because you're a very, you don't mind me saying so, you're a very British sort of person. And Brit- Britons are, you know, uh, the genetic makeup in Britain, I think, is mostly Celtic and Scandinavian. Yeah. It? But then people always say to me, Simon, you look so English. If we could have a stereotypical English face, you have it. So I, my question to them and myself now is, what is English? Genetically, because apparently I'm 2% English. Well, but something, English. something Orwell himself would have been pretty interested in. Imagine, imagine testing George Orwell's genetics. True. And when it says you're 2% English genetically, who are the genetic English? The Saxons, I suppose. But where did the Saxons come from? Well, from Northern Germany. Germany. Mm. And where did the Northern Germans come from? Apparently they came down from Scandinavia and across from the Hungary area. So. And then before that we're all you know, Indo-European and before that we're we all come African. From what's now known as Pakistan and mm. that area is where we originally came from. So I had questions. But it's very interesting. So, I haven't asked you yet. Are you thinking about doing it? Yes, I am. I'm. Uh, I'm turning thirty this year. I know you might not be able to tell from my my baby soft skin, but I'm turning thirty this year. Well, the people listening to this can't see you. They can't <laughs> believe you're just thirty. Right? Like, He's not sixty-five. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm. I'm turning thirty this year, and my mom asked me what kind of special present would you like, and. And after I heard about you doing this thing, I thought, well, I'd quite like to do one of those genetic tests too. And I'm one of the things I'm really interested to see is whether I have any Jewish heritage, because okay. it's part of our family folklore that we have some Jewish heritage somewhere. The part of Scotland that my mother comes from in the 19th century had a lot of Eastern European immigration. Um, and so do you know when uh in kind of like it would have been around the time of the pogroms in russia and uh, and the russian empire so um there's always been this kind of family folklore that we've got jewish heritage so i'd be interested to see that i you know i was joking with you when you were doing this thing that you would get it back and it would just be a map of the world and it would all be blank apart from lincolnshire um and i was thinking you know i'll get mine back and it'll all be blank apart from you know the lowlands of scotland and surrey um but you know I, i'll be interested to see how that turns out but it's it goes to show you how shrouded all this is because i identify from lincolnshire simply because i grew up there but my parents are from London and Banbury, mm. so and my mother grew up in Wales because of the war and, and the Blitz and so on. So there's no genetic atta- genet- genetic attachment to Lincolnshire. I just spent my childhood there. My family folklore was that we're French, <laughs> and that in one click on our website was completely squashed. So so experience would indicate that perhaps I don't have any Jewish yeah, heritage. Expect so. the least expected when you do it. I'm really looking forward to you getting it done now. I'm quite like, I'd like to see what your genetic map is. Of course, I'm going to be quite Scandinavian because, I, again, uh, listeners might not know, but I have red hair. So that's yeah. that's a sure sign that you have some Viking heritage. Yeah. But, but I'm a very different kind of Viking from Simon. I'm kind of a <laughs> Viking librarian. You are. So let's get on to this week's essay, which is As I Please 45. And can I interrupt you there? Yes. 
before you go into specifics about what this essay is about, this is for me and maybe for the listener, what is this as I please thing? Because in it's about how many essays are there in t- titled As I Please? It's about 60 odd. So it's As I Please 1 all the way through to 60. It confused me. So could you explain what this is? What, yes. What does it mean? Um, we're working from the brilliant selected essays of George Orwell published by Everyman. And there are about 60, 65 of these essays entitled As I Please and then the number in the sequence. Now, George Orwell, after he became a more well-known, more successful writer, um, the newspaper, the Tribune, gave him a regular column. And because he was allowed to write about anything that took his fancy, anything he was interested in, he decided just to name this column As I Please. So every week or so, it was intermittent, he would publish this column on any subject he was interested in. That's when you've made it as a columnist, isn't it? When the editor says... Do what you want. We know people are going to read it. Quite right. So, Lewis, if the story was written of your life and the title was As I Please, what would be the subtitle? That's an interesting question. As I Please, if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) If that's okay. I knew you ought to be something like that. I think mine would be As I Please, and I did. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Simon, right off the bat, what did you think of this essay? Very short essay. It wasn't what I expected. Like I told you, I wasn't aware of what you just described with the As I Please series. But having read it, I I get it now. It's just Orwell venting. He's just... How how frequent was the essay? Um, Sorry, the column. I think it was... Again, I think it was As He Pleased. But I, I think it was generally weekly, or it's probably why there are so many of them. So he's just going about his day and then he's something, he reads something or hears something and he vents through this column. And as we'll discuss with this one, he reads something somewhere, doesn't he? And it gets him thinking about something so p- perhaps not obvious as the pith helmet Yes. and what it signifies. We'll talk about that more in depth. Yes, we'll get on to what the pith helmet is in a moment. Just to uh, reiterate, we're reading As I Please, which was published in the Tribune. 20th of October, 1944. Let's start by, as we always do, summarising. He had an epiphany. Yes, um, I found this, you know, Simon, I found this a very pithy, I found this a very pithy essay. Um, And I was worried when I suggested reading this that you would think I was taking the pith. (laughs) Why does the word lisp have an S in it? That's just cruel. Yes, that's a good point. (laughs) how the world's run, the cruel way the world's run. To summarise this essay, Orwell mentions that he was reading a book about the fighting in Burma. As this essay was published, uh, the Second World War was drawing to a close, but there was still very fierce fighting in the Asian and Pacific theatres of the war. And he was reading a book about the fighting in Burma between the British Empire troops and the Japanese, Japanese imperial troops, and he mentions this point, which seems very by the by, that the British troops are not fighting wearing pith helmets, they're fighting wearing slouch hats. Now, I think we need to tell the listeners, don't we, Simon, what a pith helmet is before we go ahead. Well, I would say to the listener, think of any imperial image 
and what are they wearing on their head? In, in a tropical or a hot environment, which in, invariably the empire was. And it's wide-rimmed, yes, tall-peaked, mm. um, and made of... Made of pith. Made of pith, or, which is or cork. Which is cork from, from a certain kind of tree, I think. I think it's an Indian swamp plant, and, and they dry it out, and, it, and it's a very tough material. Mm. And so also, Was it just pith, or was it cork covered in pith? Or maybe a I think that, that I think you might be right. Cork covered in yeah. pith, but I'll take your word for it. Have you ever worn one? Have I ever... have actually. Yeah. Um, so as you know, my dad keeps bees. My mum and dad keep bees, and of course we have a lot so of. Your dad keeps the peace. Sorry. He keeps the peace with the bees. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we have a lot of you know, beekeepers have to wear veils so that the bees don't sting them. And when I was about... I'm a shy. Hey! <laughs> they wear veils and they wear special equipment to stop the bees from stinging them. When I was about 11, 12, my dad bought some beekeeping equipment that included pith helmets. Um, and you would put the helmet on and then you would put the veil on top of the helmet. And because the pith helmet has a very wide brim, it keeps the veil away from your face, so if you oh, lean okay. over, the bees can't sting you through the veil. Yeah. And breathe. We'll get on to this later, but I, I've got to tell you right now, I love pith helmets. I really love wearing them, and I love the look of them. I think we can talk more about this later, okay. but my dad wearing... Sorry, my dad uh, buying a pith helmet, or a couple of pith helmets, was a, a great event in my childhood. <laughs> So anyway, Orwell mentions that the, the British troops in Burma are not wearing these pith helmets, these helmets that are associated with British imperialism, but they're wearing slouch hats, which again, slouch hat, imagine a kind of wide-brimmed hat with one of the brims pinned up. Kind of what we imagine as kind of typical Australian Think Gallipoli. Yes, if you've yeah. ever seen the film Gallipoli, something like that. You, he know, mentions, you know it was a real battle. Of course. <laughs> if you've ever seen the film. <laughs> well, what do you mean? You mean it wasn't just... just think Gallipoli. If you've ever seen the film Gallipoli. Mm. Or if you've ever seen any real photographs from, yes. from the Gallipoli. From, from, the, the, from the, the terrible Gallipoli. It was, you mean it wasn't just a Mel Gibson vehicle? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, you'll, you'll be telling me that... On, on that topic, and we're going to talk about British Empire today, what's Mel Gibson got against... Particularly the English in their role in empire. I'm thinking Gallipoli, the Patriot, Braveheart. That's a good point, and it's quite piss off, Gibson. So yeah, why? What's Gibson's problem? I don't know. I'd never thought about that before. Maybe because I'm a Scotsman, but uh, well, what do you think about Braveheart, the movie? Can I can I say something um, shocking as a Scotsman that mm. I've never actually watched Braveheart all the way through? Because I've always, I'm very big, you know I love history, much yeah. like yourself, I'm very big on historical accuracy, and I just in can't, movies. in movies, and okay. I can't watch Braveheart, because I just keep thinking, that's not what happened, he wasn't uh, from a Highland village, he was a Norman knight, what are yeah. you doing with the story? Bloody good movie though. Mm. Well, my... Freedom! Um, um, His guts hanging out. <laughs> That's your favourite bit. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you go to a cinema in London, everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> That's what happens, Mel. That's what you get. Yeah. 
Anyway, what were we talking about? I think we were talking about George Orwell. Oh, uh, uh, the slouch cap. <laughs> yes, slouch hat. So, British troops, end of the war, not wearing pith helmets. They were wearing these slouch hats. And then Orwell goes on to write about how this is quite significant when you think about the culture of British imperialism. What what are slouch hats pinned up on one side? Oh, it's because I know this. And Do you I'm, get to choose the side? Oh, my right side. No, no, I'm very, I'm very excited to tell you about this because usually you're the military history expert, but I know the answer to this. So, um, slouch hats, yes, yeah, are pinned up guns, on yeah. one side because it, it depends which hand you use for which which hand your trigger finger is yeah. on. So if it's pinned up on the right side, then you're a right-handed person and you're you're shooting yeah. with your right hand. You just don't have a lovely complexion when looked at from the West. Yes, yes, from if the West. Yeah. <laughs> now then, Orwell goes on to make a point about how the pith helmet was not only a symbol of British imperialism, but British people used the pith helmet as a kind of excuse for empire, because it was all about the idea that Europeans, and particularly Northern Europeans, British people, were more susceptible to the heat than, quote-unquote, natives. Yeah. And he, he writes here that, again, this is quoting Orwell, natives, their skulls being thicker, had no need of these helmets. But for a European, even a double felt hat was not reliable protection. He means from the sun. And then he goes on to write about how the science behind this is very suspect and how, again, I'm quoting Orwell here, take your topi, the topi is the Hindi word for the pith helmet, take your topi off in the open for one moment, even for one moment, and you may be a dead man. And then he tells a very interesting story, and I think you might have found this story interesting too, Simon, about how he believed... It, Orwell was part of the British imperial apparatus as a young man. He, he was in the Indian Imperial Police in Burma, and so he was right on the ground administering the empire. But when he was in Burma, he started to get disillusioned with British imperialism, which as a public school boy and as an upper middle class man in the 1900s, he'd been brought up to believe in. But then when he went out to Burma, his own experience started to turn him against imperialism. And there's a very Orwellian story here, again, quoting Orwell, my own disbelief in all this, this idea that Europeans, their skulls were thinner and so that they needed to wear these solar topis, these pith helmets. My own disbelief in all this dated from the day when my topi was blown off my head and carried away yeah. down a stream, leaving me to march bareheaded all day without ill effects. Yeah. So there's Orwell discovering when he goes out to Burma that the things he has been taught, something very basic like, oh, you're a European, so you need to wear this hat all the time or you'll die. It's, it's a lie. And then you can just imagine Orwell thinking, well, what else have I been lied to about? Do, do you believe that story? Or do you think that story is a metaphor for his gradual understanding of what this meant? That's a good point. I think Orwell was far too astute to just have this one empirical event where he didn't faint without his hat for an afternoon. And suddenly thought, wait a minute, 
Have the last hundred years of social Darwinism been a lie? I, I believe he's using this story as a as a It's a kind of metaphor. light bulb. It's yeah. like uh, Isaac Newton getting the apple on his falling Exactly, his head, which is a it? wonderful metaphor for what was actually years and years of research. And I think years and years of thinking, he's just summed it up in this story here. And then he goes on to say, why should there be this whole folklore around sunstroke in India? And it's because of the whole idea of British superiority. And it's funny because it's the idea of British superiority, but it's also the idea of British delicacy. It's the idea that British people have very thin skulls. They're very delicate. But that what's the significance of the supposed master race having a thinner skull than native? Well, I would think it'd be something to do with the, the brain, wouldn't it? Um, evolution. Mm. Evolved more, hence... And There's I think, more, more space within the skull for the brain and less space for bone mass. And I think later on you and I might talk more about how the different stages of empire and how after Darwin the justification for, em for empire became much more scientific and racial, yeah. or I should say pseudo-scientific. Yeah. And then he goes on to he goes on to say that it's significant now that, I'll quote it here, that is why it seems to me a sign of the changing times. This is three years before the British Empire starts to break up. It's a sign of the changing times that Wingate's men, we'll come back to Wingate, yeah. Wingate's men, British, Indians and Burmese alike, set forth in ordinary felt hats. So here are three different races fighting together, wearing the same uniform. And we've got to think, what is the symbolism of that, particularly and to Orwell? When something is represented by a symbol, once you dismantle the symbol, you dismantle the structure, you dismantle everything behind it. So Simon, let's, let's discuss this a bit. So going back to the beginning, Orwell mentions the Chindits. The Chindits were a special force fighting the Imperial Japanese Army in Burma using guerrilla tactics. Are you familiar with them, Simon? I know you're really into military history. I am familiar with them, yeah. Um, do you know why the Chindits were necessary? Because, first of all, what was the, this force in particular, what were they protecting? They were protecting India. India, which was, if, if we lost India, the, the British involvement in the Second World War was in doubt. Because India had become so important, not only because of its uh, populace, which we were in, encouragingly, not encouragingly, but um, increasingly dipping into as a fighting force, but we were getting our raw materials from India. And if uh, Japan invaded India, Japan would really have complete control of most of Asia. The Japanese yeah. Empire would have triumphed in their goals. Exactly. And then they would have got to the Suez and blocked all the trade routes into, into Great Britain. And the border between what we would now call Bangladesh and going over to Burma, which we should mention now for people maybe not aware, is Myanmar. Um, it's it's rugged terrain. It, there's you can't. There's no open fighting there, which really suited us because in all the open fighting, such as Singapore, the Japanese were just overwhelming us. So it kind of suited us that we could revert to. And it's, it's ironic in that we protected our empire with guerrilla warfare, whereas it had always been guerrilla warfare that we had had to, to counter. 
And also, as Orwell mentions later in the essay, the Chindits were a mixed force, weren't they? Yeah. They were British soldiers, Burmese, uh, sorry, not Burmese, um, uh, Nepalese uh, Gurkhas and Indian soldiers all fighting together. But I wish you mentioned always British officers. Yes. And British uh, NCOs. So the pith helmet, I mentioned before, I love pith helmets. It's just, Simon, do you have these things that from childhood, these objects, these images, I don't know, that, do you have these things that from childhood you've always loved? Because for me, from a young age, I've always loved pith helmets for some reason. Not pith helmets. For, for me, pith helmets were always when you watched a movie on TV about the old days. Or when I, I remember way back when I watched The Jewel in the Crown. And I didn't really appreciate it then, but I, I thought of the pith helmet through that. But for when I was a child, there's two things really. I used to collect football stickers. Where I'd get you get a book with each team and you have to collect the stickers each week and stick them on each player. And as a result of that, I am now in in my approach creaking into middle age. Uh, I, I'm obsessed with lists, ticking off things. I make lists which I have to do. Like you know, when you come into my house where we're recording this, there's a, a map of Japan and I'm putting a star on each prefecture as I visit. I, I'm obsessed with that. And that might stem from that. And on my eighth birthday, my for Christmas, my present was a globe, which you plugged in and switch and it lit up wow. and 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 rotated. And I was obsessed with this globe, the best gift I've ever received to this day. And as you know me well, I, I've travelled to over seventy countries in my time, and I spent many years of my life effectively as a Globe trotter. A globe trotter. And I can't help thinking if some there's some subconscious relation to all those hours I would sit there staring at that globe. I used to be able to tell you every capital city in the world. Kenya. Nairobi. But don't forget a lot of these capital cities have changed since then. But Venezuela. Caracas. That was an easy one. Come on, challenge me. Georgia. Tbilisi. Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar. <sighs> No, no, it's one of my few talents. <laughs> the problem is, the really obscure ones, you don't want to ask me those because I could say anything you, you might not know either. The Falkland Islands. Stanley. Oh, of course. But then, you well, know, Fort Stanley or Port Stanley. We have cultural history there. So, um, so <laughs> anyway, we, I think we got onto this because I said, as a child, I loved yeah, 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 yeah. and. Um, I think it's because I was really into history and I've always quite liked historical costume as well. And the pith helmet is very much the symbol of British imperialism, isn't it? Do you think, have you ever been or do you think you will ever go to any historical reenactments where you get to dress up and... This is something I wanted to bring up actually because I heard... As you please. I heard recently that in Britain the vintage clothing community, there's been a bit of a row over the pith helmet. Okay. Because there are people who say that a white man turning up at a vintage clothes rally or event in a pith helmet is using a symbol of oppression, of imperialist oppression, and making fun, literally making fun out of what is... What do you think about that? Well, 
I do think in a way it's fair enough because it's a very loaded symbol, isn't it? Yeah. You just have to read an essay like this to realize, oh, actually, the pip helmet does symbolize ideas of racial superiority. So what, what do you make of it? it it's, it's context, isn't it? Uh, you've got to be able to read context as to the motives of why someone's wearing it. If they're just appreciating vintage clothing, then, then it's okay. If they're clearly insinuating an imperial past and relating it to the present, then I have a problem with that. But would you be offended if someone turned up with a Viking helmet? No, because they weren't they weren't cherubs. It's not uh, it's not really too soon though, is it? If I turned up as a Roman legion, would you think the villages of northern France would all be writing letters to the editor to complain? I don't know. That sounds a bit like uh, what aboutism to me. Though. Yeah, I know, I know. But when's the cutoff point? You said too soon, but so when when we're talking? So when did the pith helmet start to go out of fashion? Late forties. Early 50s? 40s, early 50s. So it's 80 years. But we're still living with the legacy of empire, aren't still we? Mate, I'm 44% Scandinavian. <laughs> still, it's all linking I, up. I'm still living with the legacy of Viking pillage. <laughs> still, the legacy of empire is a lot more immediate than that. And, uh, true, true. Speak, talking of you know, Burma, modern-day Myanmar, they're definitely living with the legacy of empire, as we've seen in the last few months. Absolutely. The the military that doesn't seem to be able to let it go and the system that was created, the corrupt system that was created from empire. Which happens a lot when, when an imperial power leaves and doesn't really leave anything in place or, or deliberately puts a certain group in place to help their commercial and defence interests. Do you know a, a group from the early 20th century in England called the Libertines, uh, an indie rock group? Yes, yes. They used to... You say early 20th century. Oh, sorry, early 21st century. I was going to say, they don't yeah. say, I don't think there was, was like Edward... Band, I was going to say, I don't think there was Edwardian <laughs> rock. <laughs> so yeah, I was going to say, century. are you thinking about Evelyn War or something, a Libertine in the early 20th century? Well, they're kind of, their lyrics from their songs and their image as being libertines they're very libertarian very bohemian but they used to dress up in uh, um, um, imperial like red jackets red jackets and... uniforms no one said a thing i don't know if it was a form of irony or well they... late 90s early 2000s it was a big time for irony wasn't it yeah it'd be interesting so i say, I say it's context mm. like i said before i'm pretty sure that those four lads in that band weren't trying to invoke Although they had a, one of their songs was called Albion, which is the, the ideal image of England. But it sounds like they were trying to do a bit of a kind of kinks sort of thing, but maybe not as successfully as the well, kinks. Well, that's another thing about the kinks. With Ray Davis, is a bit of a little Englander, isn't he? Like, no, I, I would actually argue... His whole album on the Victorian values. I would argue against that. I think... I think we'll probably get onto this in another podcast, but I think the kinks are quite Orwellian in their appreciation of English culture because I think that they 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 sing about the best things about English culture while criticising the worst things. Think about a song like Village Green Preservation Society, yeah. which is all about, um, what, what is it? Preserving the old ways from being abused, protecting the new, protecting the new ways 
for me and for you. So it's preserving what's good about English culture and protecting the new ways, protecting the new freedoms. But the, the song Victoria is going on about how we used to have an empire and what a pity it is we don't anymore. But don't you find it's also... Victoria in a way, ruled them all. Yes, but then it's also satirising the traditional view of... But where's the satire in that Well, song? remember, you know, long ago, something, something, sex was bad, cold, obscene. Now, I don't think guys in the 60s would agree that sex was bad and should be cold, obscene. So I, I think there was a heavy amount of satire. I, I've also seen some great interviews with Ray Davis where he's very he's really criticising the modern political situation in Britain. So I think there's more to it okay. than that. How old, how old are your parents? Oh, they're uh, kind of uh, late 60s. So what were they doing in the 60s? Well, they were kind of, they were still school, finishing up school. Dad started work by about 68, 69. It was, it was a long-haired biker, right? He was, long-haired And that was the my mom late was a, 60s. My mum was a hippie, too. Oh, really, really? My, my dad was a paratrooper. <laughs> I don't think he had the... Don't the, think he had long hair. Yeah, I don't think he had the 60s experience you see on the, on the, um, on the Pathé film. <laughs> Going back to the essay, Orwell mentions that the pith helmet was also referred to as the toki, or the solar toki. Um, oh... Simon, that reminds me. Did you watch that brilliant version? Say, I found a 2P for you. Cheeky bastard. <laughs> no, you don't need it quite yet. Um, but did you watch that brilliant version of Hamlet, which was set in during the British Raj? No. It's on YouTube. You should watch it because there's this bit where uh, Hamlet comes out and he says, Topi or not Topi. <laughs> <laughs> is this... Is this Carry on Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to make... We haven't mentioned the pun jar in a while, so I'm just trying to make up for lost time. Good one. Um, I like that. So, I, you mentioned before how Orwell is kind of saying, you know, this is nonsense, I had this epiphany, but I liked how you read it, that this was actually his, the distillation yeah. of what he realised rather than rather than, uh, like, one Newton moment. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think Orwell has eureka moments. So, finishing up, what do you think of the way he brings it together at the end, saying, you know, Wingate's men, British, Indians and Burmese alike, set forth in ordinary felt hats. It's very quite egalitarian. It's a bit propaganda as well, isn't it? Have you seen that famous poster from the Second World War? which is a poster of Commonwealth troops marching shoulder to shoulder. Yes. Yeah. I'll maybe put that on Instagram if I can for our listeners. It's this beautiful I image. should be able to. That, that's probably owned mm. by the Imperial War Museum or something, which means we should be able to post that. It's an image of like a Canadian trooper, a Canadian soldier, a British soldier, Indian soldier, uh, maybe an Australian soldier. And the soldier. Australian is wearing the slouch hat. wearing the slouch hat. And they're all marching shoulder to shoulder in defence of the Empire and Commonwealth. So do you think Orwell's being a bit propaganda in this essay? I think he is. He knows that we need the Commonwealth for, for demographic reasons, so for troops to fight. And I and he, don't think he's working for the BBC at this time, isn't he, as a kind of propagandist. And I think that's carried into this essay. Or do you think he sees ahead 
he sees Atlee, what he's doing and what, he, what he, he's predicting that he's going to win after the Second World War. And we are going to be a country which is going to be desperately short of manpower. And we'll have to open up to the Empire with regards to immigration. And he's foreseeing that and getting his word in about integration and working together. I think, I think there's definitely some of that there. Mm. I think Orwell knows that a change is coming. He knows that as soon as the war is over, mm. and this was after the Normandy landings, I think. Uh, let me just double check, actually. So the Normandy landings were 6th of June, June 44? This was October 44. So even though... So we've started to really... Broken the breach, we're pushing into. It's obvious that the war in Europe is coming to an end. So I think Orwell knew, or he felt at least, that the tide was turning and that British imperialism and this idea of racial superiority could not outlast the war. Yeah. We, we didn't mention earlier, but. Because they've been fighting shoulder to shoulder. Yes. And we didn't mention earlier, but when I was. Well, at, soldier to soldier. Hand to hand. We didn't mention earlier the, the stages. I don't know if you learned this at university, Simon, but I learned at university that the, the British Empire... Does it involve Jägermeister? No. So then, no, is the answer. Please, please don't tell any of the listeners some of the things you learned at university. <laughs> yeah, then the answer's no. Um, we were told that the British Empire went through three or four distinct phases. It started off as trade. It then... Uh, the trading companies like the East India can, Company. Can I plug my YouTube channel? Please do. Yeah. Go, ahead. go to Four Minute Histories. You can learn about this. If you want to learn about the British Empire, go yeah. to Four Minute Histories. It's brilliant. Um, so, uh, British Empire started off as trade. Then the trading companies started interfering in the local politics of the countries. And then it became a more like a kind of... Mid through, through the East, East India, India Company. company. Yeah. Um, and was there a West India Company too? There, there was a West India Company, but it was Spanish. I see. And ironically, it's what they operated in the Philippines. Because mm. they always assumed that you had to go a long way around to this get together. To yeah. So, started off as trade, then interfering in politics, then the missionaries moved in. And it yeah. became, when the missionaries moved in, it's, the empire became about spreading Christian values. Then it became about spreading Western or, or European values. Mm. After Darwin, so from like the 1870s, 1880s, the empire, to support the empire, it became a kind of race, it became underpinned by ideas of racial Well, the spreading of Western values actually don't predate Darwinism. They kind of coincide. Mm. So pre-Darwinism, it was very economic and there wasn't much racial theory. And my question for you is, when we, when we speak about thick skulls, thin skulls, social Darwinism, do the British believe they are racially superior, so they are extolling these virtues, or do they just not, they know they need a justification for their policies, and they found a convenient outlet in social Darwinism? Which one do you think it is? Well, this is the thing. Call me a cynic, if you will, but I think it's just an excuse, really. I, I agree with you. Um, I don't think these policymakers sitting in uh, Westminster truly believed in social Darwinism. Yes, it was just an excuse for why we could go into a country with guns and say, okay, all this is ours now. Oh, why, wh why are we here? Why, are, why should you let us take all this? It's because we're superior. Mm. I, I should disclose here, I'm heavily, heavily influenced by 
The Concept of Orientalism by Edward Said. And in a nutshell, that basically is where the, the Western imperial powers would demean the natives of the countries they have colonized in order to justify their presence, their superiority. Exactly how, and Orwell is speaking 40 years before the publication of Orientalism. The book Orientalism was the book that pretty much started the whole ideology of post-colonialism. So Orwell is kind of pre-post-colonial. He's the genius of the man. He, he, he's a post-colonialist before post-colonialism. I'd be very interested to know if Edward Said knew about this essay. I bet you he did, you know. I bet you he did. He's a very astute man, Edward Said. I know... Do you know Franz Fanon? No. He wrote a book called Wretched of the Earth. So he was a French... Um, Algerian. Not a French Algerian. He was from Martinique. But he he was very Orwellian. So Still he, a colony of France, of course. Yeah, but he fought with the Algerian Liberation Force in the Algerian War of Independence, yeah. And was a very influential post-colonialist writer. And I'd recommend anyone to read his book, Wretched of the Earth. And he he openly said he was a big fan of George Orwell. And George Orwell's books had inspired him in his ideologies. So there you have it, everyone. If you're a student of post-colonialism, Orientalism, yeah. read this Orwell essay because he knew what was going on before Edward Said. He's summing up Edward Said's entire philosophy in this book about how we are using these, this subjugation and diminution of native populace to justify our presence. And for presence, I'm talking synonymously with superiority, or supposed superiority. So, Simon, let's finish there, because we're nearly at 50 minutes, and I want to keep it pithy. Oh and I think you need to go for a pith. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> so because this week we've been talking about Orwell's As I Please column, it's inspired us to do something a bit different next week. Next week, Simon and I will be doing As We Please, we're going to talk about... Hedonism. Yes, and... I'll letting it go, letting your hair down, because letting my hair down would be pretty pathetic. It'd be, be a bit dangerous for you, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, so we're going to do As We Please next week. Uh, so if you want to hear Simon and I talking without an essay to encumber us, then please tune in next week. It will be Orwellian. We'll be talking about themes relevant to Orwell's being. But it would just be a bit more bit looser, yeah. Comfort fit, yeah. All right, everyone. Pajamas to today's suit Today, and pith helmet. Today's suit and pith helmet. Yeah. Next week, pith helmet and pajamas. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Oh, I should probably mention we're on most of the podcast platforms, aren't we, Simon? Apple Pods, Google Pods. Uh, we're on. Spotify, we Audible, have an Instagram Amazon, page. Oh, and please Twitter. write write to us, write to us, um, orlpod at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from you. Uh, okay, everyone. And a big shout out to our fan. <laughs> <laughs> we have a fan, so. And his friend. Yeah, um, yeah, makeup friend. So a big shout out to you, fan. Um, hi, hi, mum and dad. <laughs> hi, Simon, mum and dad. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Orwell with it as well. Oh, God. Oh.